You're listening to the Fooled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Heidi Marble, host of Pulled by the Root podcast. Okay, get ready. This episode is a masterclass given by the amazing transracial adoptee global advocate, Linnell Long. Linnell came to us uh, via Zoom from Australia, and we talked for a solid hour about all of the details of her own personal story, which were both heart-wrenching and also hopeful. And we went into the larger issues surrounding the global problems uh, regarding adoption and adoptee rights. This episode was, my goodness, it was so revealing to me. I know that you will get a lot out of it as well. I am so overjoyed to introduce our guest, Linnell Long. Linnell is a Vietnamese adoptee born in the early 70s, founder of the Inter-Country Adoptee Voices, which began in 1998. Now one of the largest platforms worldwide to bring together the leaders of inter-country adoptee-led groups around the globe. Her network is a critical thinking space that advocates for the needs and rights of inter-country adoptees. She has been a consultant to central authorities in adoption, is an author and contributor to books on intercountry adoption, is an educator, coordinates meetings with adult intercountry adoptees and government authorities. Involved also with the Hague Working Group on addressing and preventing illicit practices in adoption, guest speaker at training sessions and conferences for various central authorities and post-adoption organizations worldwide, including the 2019 U.S. Department of State Adoption Symposium, blogger and creator of a collection of papers which bring together adult intercountry adoptee views on various topics. Well, Linnell, I have immersed myself in the body of work that you've been involved with, and it, and it means so much to me as an, an adoptee, a domestic adoptee in America, coming out of the fog and realizing the global significance of this problem, and also just the extra layers. I know how difficult my own experience has been, and I can't even imagine being removed from your country uh, and all of these things. So for me, I really feel like I'm a student right now in, in listening and learning. And before I prepare for every guest, I have a little ritual. I have a quote box. I'm obsessed with quotes. And I go to it, and I think about the person. And I'm like, help me, Lord, say all the right things. <laughs> And I pulled out quotes, but it was so interesting because two were stuck together today. So I was just going to read them to you. The first one is by C.S. Lewis. Hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. I think that's very appropriate for you. The other by Walter Anderson. I am responsible. Although I may not be able to prevent the worst from happening, I am responsible for my attitude toward the irrevocable misfortunes that darken life. Bad things happen. How we respond to them defines character and the quality of life. And I can choose to sit in the perpetual sadness immobilized by the gravity of loss, or I can choose to rise from the pain. And Linnell, I feel like that really embodies who you are, and maybe that's over, overreaching. <laughs> But uh, enough of me talking. I, I really think it would be powerful for people to know as much as you feel comfortable sharing maybe about your adoption story and about what drove you to create the intercountry, you know, what was the personal motivation. And I think what also stuns me is some of the low points that you felt in your, in your process of healing. And I think it would be encouraging for people to know that that such a significant amount of healing is possible. So that's a lot of points, but I just want to sit back and, and let you digest that and tell us what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my adoption story, you could do just a spiel, a whole thing on that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Will, we need a series. I will, <laughs> <laughs> I will keep it short. One day I should write a book or something. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in, in rural Australia, as many Americans also grow up in rural regions. Um, I was adopted into a family who had four biological children of their own. I'm in the middle. Um, and I was adopted out of the Vietnam War. So there's a lot of, you know, media hype around that time in the early 70s. 
um, you know, about the involvement in those wars and I guess what the responsibility was of, of the involved countries. So I came out in the middle of that heated kind of space in time. Um, my adoptive family back then didn't really know much about adoption um, and the social workers, you know, to be honest, they were quite uneducated about the impacts or the effects of inter-country adoption at that time because we were, you know, between the Koreans and the Vietnamese, we were like, you know, a huge en masse group that was suddenly uplifted out of these countries. Um, so my parents really didn't know anything and they weren't told anything except love the child like your own and everything will be okay. Um, that's such a naive, in, in hindsight, such a naive kind of, way to approach inter-country adoption. You know, inter-country adoption is not the same as domestic adoption um, because there are just so many additional layers of loss um, in terms of country, culture, race, customs, religion, uh, you know, all of these things that we lose that are additional to a domestic adoption, at least in a domestic adoption situation, you can still access your records if the laws allow, but at least it's written in English or whatever country that you're born into and at least you've got laws that um, you can understand, whereas, you know, you think about my situation adopted out of Vietnam, how on earth do I even go about navigating trying to get my documentation, even trying to read it because it's in a completely different language? Um, so there's just so many more barriers that we have to jump through and, and navigate uh, when we're adopted from another country. And I guess, too, you know, one fundamental point that people don't think about in inter-country adoption is we've actually been given up by our country as well, not just by our parents. So when you think of it from that perspective, it's it's like a, extra layers of abandonment. It's not just the personal. It's on a national scale that we've been given up. So it really brings home um, a whole level of uh, loss that, that we live that most um, domestic adoptees don't really think about. So my, my adoption story, um, in a nutshell, I grew up in a fairly rural, isolated region in Australia. Um, I didn't have any other non-white people around me except Aboriginal Australians who were talked about derogatively and very much seen as, you know, you don't want to be one of those kind of people. Um, so that's how I was raised, very religious family. Um, so every church I went to, every school I went to, every every space that I inhabited, I was very much the only non-white child being raised amongst a whole heap of white people. So for me, I grew up with a huge sense of shame in looking different um, because it was always pointed out. As much as my adoptive family uh, embraced and loved me in their own way, uh, they failed to see how I was treated by others. Uh, so at school, for instance, in those early primary school years, I was always teased, I was always had names, monkey face, you know, eyes, ching chong Chinaman, all the things that kids will say in naivety and just repeating what they hear in their families. Um, but, but I had no kind of allies because my adoptive family, being white, did not understand what it's like to be the target of racism, what it's like to be othered because they were always part of the main, mainstream group. Um, so that feeling is quite isolating when you grow up in that and you have no language or terminology to even be able to voice what you're experiencing. And it wasn't until my 20s after I'd left all of that rural regional space, you know, when I finally graduated from my high school and moved in a state to Sydney, um, which is in Australia, such a multicultural kind of, you know, boiling pot. So many Asians up here, it was like, it was like suddenly I realised, you know, for the first time in my life, oh, my God, you know, I, I, there's actually a heap of Asians up here who look like me. So it was quite liberating to leave that um, that fairly, um, I don't know what the word would be, but very uh, mono um, space that I had grown up in and to come to a melting pot of many races and many much diversity um, and to even be able to see all these different types of Asian restaurants that you could eat at. It wasn't just Chinese, you know, <laughs> down in the countryside. All you really get is a Chinese restaurant or if you're lucky, maybe a Thai, but definitely right. none of the other nuances of Asia that you actually can get. So um, coming to Sydney was a breath of fresh air. 
I was suddenly surrounded by lots of other people. And being in Sydney and away from my adoptive family, um, you know, my childhood was difficult, uh, very challenging. My adoptive parents were very conservative religious, so we already were a minority within a minority being Seventh-day Adventist, um, kind of a, a very strict religion. Um, you know, wasn't allowed to eat meat, wasn't allowed to listen to pop music, wasn't allowed to drink tea or coffee. Um, there was all these rules and regulations about what you weren't and couldn't do. Couldn't go to dances, couldn't see movies. So it's very restrictive, my childhood. And uh, layered with that on top of being a minority person as well, it was like, you know, I barely had any friends because I wasn't allowed to do all the things normal people do. Um, you know, couldn't go sleepovers, couldn't go dancing because it was all meant to be evil. Um, and, and, and the way my, my birth family was talked about, oh, you know, your mum was probably a prostitute or, uh, you know, that, that just had such profound layers of shame for me because Asian women and the way that we are stereotypically portrayed in mainstream media and things, I mean, you see even in, in your latest Atlanta shootings, Asian women and the way that we are portrayed, I mean, that was very um, significant in my life, had a huge impact on how I felt about myself growing up. I felt very ashamed of being Asian. Um, and then on top of that, because my adoptive family um, was quite toxic, you know, there was abuse that went on in my home. I was treated like the family slave. I was sexually abused by multiple members of the family. I lived multiple layers of trauma um, that were that were placed on me on top of the relinquishment trauma. But it took me, um, you know, quite a lot of years in my late 20s to even unravel all of that and come to terms with what it was, to find a language for it and to find other survivors uh, who had lived through similar experiences. The most empowering and powerful impact, um, the most powerful experience I had was when I went and did some healing for sexual abuse. Um, I probably was the only adoptee there, I don't know. I, I didn't really even have adoption on my radar when I went searching for help for that. But it was the first help, self-help that I really reached out for because I could see how much that experience had impacted my life and my sense of self, sense of shame, the, the troubles I was having with relationships. Um, so I went seeking help and I found a group um, therapy for, you know, survivors, women survivors of sexual abuse. Now, I went to that. It was the most amazing experience ever to be in a group of women who had all lived sexual abuse who, you know, spoke openly about it where it was done by professional counsellors who knew how to, you know, navigate and lead the, the discussions. It was like a 10-week course or something. Um, but one, one woman in particular really had a profound effect on me. She was like a 60-year-old woman and she had lived three generations of sexual abuse in her family once she realised what was going on. But at 60, she was finally going for help. And the reason why was because she said, my granddaughter is a victim of the same sexual perpetrator as what she had had, which was her father. So that man had perpetrated on her, her daughter and her granddaughter. No. And it was only by the time that it got to her granddaughter that she realised she had to stop burying her head in the sand and go and get help. Now, she had such a profound influence on me because I thought to myself, you know what, I'm not going to be this woman. I'm going to learn from what she has been brave enough to share. You know, you can just imagine how many layers of shame she had in even, in even being able to honestly express that, but it had such a powerful effect on me that I thought to myself, I'm not going to allow perpetuation of these traumas to go on for further generations so that group was powerful and I've never openly spoken about this before but um because it was so powerful I realized the power of group healing and that is why I started up this network 1998 I first came across a group of other adoptees through a book that we did a book project that was put on by one of the post-adoption organizations here in Sydney Australia I met other intercountry adoptees just like me for the first time and I must have been about 25 at that time. It was it had as much of a powerful influence on me as it did when I met the women who had been um, victims of sexual abuse. And I was just like, wow, you know. So 
because it had such a powerful impact on me, I, I knew I had to replicate this. I had to allow others the opportunity to be able to find a sense of solidarity, to, to release themselves from those bonds of isolation. Um, and that's isolation is a huge, huge issue that I hear repeated over and over again by almost every adoptee that comes into my network. You know, that sheer sense of I have been so alone in my journey and, wow, how incredible it is to actually meet other people who can reflect my experiences and who can share how they've come out of those experiences. I think it's so important that we have these spaces where we can encourage people who are suffering and struggling to know that there is light at the tunnel, end of the tunnel, but, you know, that it requires a lot of hard work. So I spent, um, you know, a good decade or more and still go to counselling sessions because once you start on the journey of healing and finding your, your truth and learning to be true to yourself, um, you never really get off that path. But, it's, but it is a big commitment to finally take responsibility for your issues and your, the, the baggage that you have inherited and often through no fault of your own. But they are, it is the baggage that we get and, and there is no way out except to either deal with that and deal with it appropriately or to continue to be impacted by it and to continue to let your life be controlled by it. So for me, um, you know, I had attempted suicide many times. I ended up in hospital. Um, there were many occasions in those dark moments of going through the therapy, coming to terms with it. And often what people don't realise is that actually the process of going through therapy can actually take you back into all of that pain that we so often spend our whole life trying to escape. Like re-traumatizing or, yeah, re-traumatizing. Yeah, you end up reliving it. You end up having to re-experience much of it. But but what people forget is that, that therapy is reteaching us that we are now adults when we go through it, when we relive it. It's, it, it doesn't have to kill us, literally. Um, figuratively, emotionally, it feels like it. But, but we are, the whole process of therapy, the whole point is to learn that we can carry that pain and actually survive it and overcome it. We can learn to listen to what it teaches us about ourselves and we can learn to embrace it and actually how to carry it safely so that we no longer destroy ourselves or others but learn to harness the energies that it gives us, that motivation, um, and, and turn it into something more powerful than, than what it began as. So for me and my experience has very much been a journey of doing that um, and I've had some incredible lessons that I've learned, you know, such as how to find a good counsellor, you know, don't just, don't just trust that all of them are good. Um, but you know, it, it is a real learning experience of coming to terms with what works for you, um, where you're at in your stage of journey and how to learn to, um, be confident and empower yourself to, to make the right choices, you know, and to say, oh, well, if I, if this doesn't feel right, then it probably isn't right. You know, so much of our, um, experiences as adoptees where we learn to stifle our true feelings. Um, it, it's a whole process of coming to relearn. We've got to listen to those gut inner feelings and to connect our body with our mind and not to cut off and separate ourselves. I believe a lot of that, um, that cutting off and fragmenting ourselves is, is what does so much damage to us, um, you know, permanently in, in the long run if we don't learn to reintegrate who we are as people um, and, and come to embrace our truth and to live by our truth and not to be dictated by trying to appease others or trying to fit in because we're so desperate to belong. So there's so many elements that I've just very briefly talked about, but, you know, that, that's my journey in a nutshell and, and very much um, creating this network, building this network, connecting with other adoptees, Turning my energies of pain and hurt into something constructive has been some of the most powerful healing things that I've done. Um, and definitely talking to other adoptees in this journey um, has been a, a big part of getting validation and, and knowing that I'm not alone and that, you know, I'm not speaking something that's out there as a Martian, which is how I felt when I first grew up, but actually that my story and this experience of trauma is replicated around the world amongst so many adoptees and it goes so unrecognized so very much what I do now is to try and bring that to the light in a way that 
you know, can be received. It's hard for people to hear about all this stuff, um, but it's so necessary for people to hear and to absorb and to slowly start to, you know, value and respect that there's so much that we have to say that that needs to be learned from. Oh, Linnell, I, I'm just, uh, I've had like rolling goosebumps. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that that with us. I know it will mean so much to so many because I think being able to stand in our truth, even the darker parts of it. And, you know, you speak very vividly about the, the lady that was 60 and her bravery, her courage is what you're doing right now. And who's listening? Because, you know, as I'm learning, the statistics are grim when it comes to adoptees. Mm -hmm. And if we can have these conversations and people can see, wow, if, if, I, if I work hard, if I get therapy, if I join the community, if I get support, if my truth, if I identify with my truth, if I start to put the parts of my piece, you know, self back together, I think for me, disassociation is like the go-to, you know, being able to fragment ourselves is how we protect ourselves. And I think there's so many amazing points and and I just wanted to say thank you. I know that's going to resonate. It certainly did with me. I felt it in every part of my body. And, and thank you for, for sharing that because this is a global problem. And, and we need to speak louder about it because we have to start changing the narrative. I, even as a 55-year-old, was totally in denial about all of this. How can that be? And I've lived it like, mm. and it's changing me. So hopefully we can open yeah. the eyes of understanding. And, and that's I just why it's so important to have the community because, you know, giving ourselves the language, giving mm. ourselves the words is a huge part of what we don't have when we grow up in our adoptive families unless they're very awoke, um, unless they're very on top of understanding, you know, this stuff. Yeah, Linnell, and I'd love because I really feel, first of all, you are wicked smart. I've been listening to you on all these interviews. I'm like, okay, she needs to be president or queen of something. I'm not sure, but yeah. <laughs> so so I, I really think, you know, when I look into this, and I'm not an expert, so I'd love for you to push back if I say something wrong, but the good old United States of America seems a little archaic when it comes to the global stage of adoption. For example, I think you mentioned to me the last time we spoke, I believe it was the Netherlands, or there's some shifting going on globally that's happening. And I just wonder if you could speak to that and what, what you see, like what can we do over here that, that could be helpful and that you see as necessary for change? Absolutely. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, it's it's more than a little change that's happening worldwide. It's more like a tsunami um, starting to begin. Mm. Um, and, and that is, you know, the, the the work that has been done in the Netherlands, which is the heart of The Hague um, for the Intercountry Adoption Convention. Um, basically, what you've seen over there is that the adoptees have really stood up and pushed for their rights um, and this has been instrumental by people like Patrick Nordoven. He's a Brazilian adoptee who has literally led the way by creating the first legal action to hold the government accountable for their right to identity. He's also written an amazing paper um, on the right to identity as adoptees. Um, but, but, you know, one, it's a fundamental human right. Now, I know that the US hasn't been a signatory of the UNCRC, the United Nations Child's Rights Charter, but you, are, you have your own, you know, universal human rights um, uh, thing that stands there in the United States, which is, you know, fairly equivalent. So, so part of what Europe has done um, has been for those adoptees to really stand up for their rights and push for decades push, push, push for their rights to be visible and to be seen and to be recognised. Now, that has been responded to by the Dutch government by having two investigations. One was quite a few years ago where, again, they came to the same conclusion that they've come to again. So twice that government has done an investigation into historic adoptions um, and twice they have concluded that there has been just systemic um, trafficking, systemic outright issues that are 
questionable and ethical and do not preserve the rights of adoptees um, to their original identity. So it is interesting that they have called a halt to all intercountry adoptions coming into the Netherlands now. And it's interesting to watch the debate that's going on because, of course, you know, the adoptive parent organisations and, and um, lobbyists, you know, and agencies who have been benefiting off intercountry adoption as a practice for so many decades, and we're talking, you know, decades, because let's not forget intercountry adoption has been going on since the 1960s. Um, the Greeks, the, the Germans, the, the Spain, Spanish, they have all started way before the Asian countries started en masse sending their children out. Um, so we have decades, and they're all in my network, um, you know, representatives of groups and leaders of those groups over decades, so right through from those 50s and 60s, the 70s and 80s where there was a lot of um, Asians and then South and, and South Americans and then right through to, you know, where you get the more modern-day 2000s um, era of adoptions from, you know, China largely and um, countries in the Asian countries again. So what we're seeing um, in the Netherlands is a lot of upheaval and questioning about the historic practices, a lot of adoptees standing up for their rights. Now, America could learn a lot from this because essentially, you know, in my engagement with the U.S., um, directly with the central authorities and, and, you know, meeting the departments who are participants in the process there. Very much there's a feel and a flavour in there that the adoptee voices uh, tokenistically listened to but not actually taken seriously. Um, and I think what needs to change will, will be an awakening that happens en masse. You know, once you get um, all of your intercountry adoptees starting to really recognise that, hang on, I could actually find a legal pathway to take action against what's happened to me. America will have no choice but to have to change. Um, and that's essentially what's got to happen. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, through Europe now that a lot of intercountry adoptees are starting to find and make sure they pave ways for these legal pathways for their rights for their which have been very much ignored in the whole history of intercountry adoption and adoption in general um so yeah um i mean in switzerland you're seeing the same they, they their government also conducted investigation into um chilean adoption sweden's doing the same belgium it's doing the same france is being asked to do the same so all of these groups are becoming very proactive in their rights, about what their rights are, about how to fight for those rights and how to petition for those rights. So they're getting very active. In the US, you've only really got in inter-country adoption space two groups who are actively pushing for their rights, and that is the groups that are focusing on citizenship and deportation. Um, now, they're two pieces of legislation um, together with the rehoming legislation that is being looked at. But, again, not a lot of real heavy engagement from impacted adoptees in these spaces, um, particularly rehoming. It's, it's still an area that's, um, I think, because it causes so much trauma. I mean, you think of the fact of being shipped out of your country, being placed into another family, being sent underground to a different family and having multiple families where there's no oversight um, and no one really advocating for you because once you hit that adoptive family and even if they do the wrong thing by you, there is no one there to advocate for your rights or to protect you. So you're just getting trauma upon trauma upon trauma from families who really don't care about your needs or rights um, and just shift, shift you around because it's not working for them. Um, this is, of course, worst-case scenarios and not all adoptions are like this and I don't pretend that they are, but you know, my organisation and what I do is we speak out about the worst-case scenarios because the very fact that they exist means that the legislation is not protecting the most vulnerable and this is what we should be doing. We should be making sure that, you know, adoption is supposed to be about protecting the most vulnerable but how can you be conducting that ethically if you're not actually questioning your worst-case scenarios and making sure that you have protections in place for those most vulnerable who are falling out of the gaps, slipping between the cracks and having the worst case experiences, you know. And this is where, again, you know, the whole setup and structure of intercountry adoption 
particularly in the US, is not geared for the rights and the needs of adoptees. Just consider the very fact that there is no legislated, mandated post-adoption support that should be freely available and equitably available to all who are inter-country adopted. That is such a huge area that is meant to be provided for but is given very, very scant resources to. Um, and that's, that's a crime in my view. How can you ethically bring children in who you know have trauma, whose families are not necessarily geared up and, and understand what they're even walking into properly and then expect that to turn out well? Um, that's just naive, unethical and, frankly, irresponsible. So any government who conducts adoptions in this manner, who doesn't mandate and legislate adequate post-adoption support that's free, equitable to all who are impacted, they should be questioned and they need to be held accountable. These are the kind of things that adoptees need to be standing up for and pushing, pushing for their rights to make sure that if you're going to conduct inter-country adoption, at least do it with your eyes wide open, adequately resource it and make sure that you are considering for the long-term journey of what we all know is not just a short-term transaction but is a lifelong impact. Um, and that's a lifelong impact even when you consider that we have children. We aren't children forever as adoptees. We grow up, we become adults, we have children ourselves, and yet the impacts of our adoption do influence and impact our children as well. And, and I think, you know, for too long we have had governments and organisations like adoption agencies participating and conducting adoptions without actually taking on board that this is not just a short-term transaction. You have to be responsible for the long-term of this um, journey that you are facilitating. And eventually one day we will see en masse that adoptees and birth families and adoptive families will finally hold governments and agencies accountable for their lack of, even though they know this information it's not as if they're blind anymore. We can't pretend that we are back in the 70s where we're just starting to do adoptions and inter-country adoptions and we don't know any better. We do know better and we should be doing better. So um, some of the things that we should be pushing for is a complete investigation into all the historic adoptions that have happened um, and finding out, you know, where, where based on good research, do we have these gaps and problems? Where are the rights being ignored and obliterated? Where, where do we need to put in more prevention and more supports? You know, this is just not being done. So governments are just continuing to facil facilitate adoption. And, and I haven't even spoken about the fact that, that we um, only conduct plenary adoptions. What needs to change as a bare minimum is that we start to have a conversation about the fact that plenary adoption does obliterate our right to identity because you are um, removing the child's rights to their original family. Um, what should happen, what should happen is that we start to even consider um, simple adoption as a solution to at least preserving our rights to our original kin. Um, you know, just because our mothers or fathers could be in dire situations or unfit to look after us doesn't mean that we should have our legal right to our grandmother or our sister or our auntie obliterated forever, you know, and this is where plenary adoption is totally archaic around the world and needs to change. We have to have these conversations that are tough and we have to change the legislation that is archaic and not respectful of our rights. So I, I think that would make a huge difference, Linnell, because I think, you know, in my my case is so simplified because I don't have the intercountry. But I just remember the the feeling of not being able to to know who I am. Like, yeah. where did I come from? Is that person my relative? You know, I don't think most people and then you're really not allowed to talk about it. You know, yeah. because you're supposed to be grateful that you were saved. And there's so many distortions with this. And I I think you're right. At a bare minimum, it's a human rights issue. There is. is no other group that is denied this information. Am I wrong? <laughs> like, mm. it, it's absolutely infuriating, you know. And But also, as I hear you speak with such passion and conviction, there's a part of me that's hopeful, you know, that 
if people hear more of these conversations and they start to understand, maybe maybe we can kind of move the needle a little, you know. So yeah, thank and you. That, and that thank understanding you. has to, I mean, that understanding has to build even within the adoptee right. community. You know, the, my experience in, in dealing with a good many, you know, I've got thousands of adoptees that I'm connected to into country and, and um, you know, a good lot of them in America don't actually understand these basic fundamentals um, of how the structure is, the process and what's involved. Most adoptees, you know, just are really just grappling with their own adoption story. And that's such a, that's that's one little piece of the pie, you know, is our own individual story and, and how we navigate our way through that. But once you do that and once you, and that's why it's so important to connect into the wider groups because it starts to raise your awareness that, hang on, this is not just me. It's not just me that's lost my identity. It's not just it's me. All of us. We have we have an estimated over 2 million intercountry adoptees around the world, okay, and all of our rights have been obliterated when we have been, con- when we have been adopted under a plenary adoption system. We don't have any legal right back to our family of origin. So worst-case scenario that, that people don't understand is even if I found my birth mother or father, I live in Australia, I am a citizen of Australia, I am not allowed by law to bring my mother or father to Australia under the family immigration law because they're not my family. By law, they've been severed from me. So I have no ability to claim them as my own mother and father because I have been plenary adopted. I've been severed from them forever. So unless I annul my adoption, now again, that raises the whole issue of, well, how hard is it or is it even possible to even annul my adoption so that I could even revert back to my original kinship connection by law? Um, And again, when you start to look around the world at how difficult it actually is for many of us to annul or revoke our adoptions so that we could actually have a right back to our original family, you've got to ask yourself, how is this in our interest, you know? Um, it's not in our interest and we need to be listening to these these voices that are critically thinking about our longer-term impacts. Yeah, I mean, most adoptees will just go, well, I've had a happy adoption, I've got a great family, I've gained a look at all the education and all the material things I've gained. Well, that might be well and true, but you can also hold that together with, but hang on, I would like to be a dual yeah. citizen of my birth country. What about that as a very basic Shouldn't I have a right to even claim to have my own birth country as my country? Shouldn't I be able to travel back there and be recognised as a citizen of that country as well? Why do I have to lose that to also be given a family and a great life? Like surely we can get to a point where we can have a conversation where we can learn from the benefits of what we gain from being given these wonderful, awesome families and countries, but we shouldn't have to lose all these other things as well at the same time. Um, And and that's where a lot of adoptees who are just starting to kind of explore their own individual journey, you know, have quite some way to go until they start to even grapple some of these bigger picture issues and, and, and rights, rights concerns. Well, well, and I'm right in the middle of it, Linnell. I mean, hearing you speak has already just, I feel myself expanding as, as we're speaking because I just, I've immersed myself in books and stories and listening and the problem is it's so big and it's so catastrophic on a human level. And I think yeah. about the struggle and, you know, when you speak about, it's like, what, what is the solution? You know, I mean, how can we, not to simplify it, but what do you see, like, if you could, in a world, if you could dream and say, listen, there are going to be children that cannot be kept for whatever reason by their parents. Yeah. What does that look like in, in the most humane like I can't visualize it. Can you help me paint a picture? Yeah. Like yeah. what I would mean, be like, yeah, I can. Yeah. And this is where family preservation goes along with community preservation. So first mm-hmm. and foremost, we should be, if the parents themselves cannot look after their children, we should be making sure the community can. Okay. We do whatever we can to empower that, that, that community, that, that network of who that child is most closely connected to. You empower them to look after that child and help them be raised in a place where they can maintain their culture, their identity, their roots, their origins, their language, their religion that they're born into. 
everything that is theirs by being born where they are. That is what we should be doing the most, is preserving as much as that as possible. Then, and only then, if we fail to find any solutions there, should we be looking at things like simple adoption or or permanent care orders or um, other models like stewardship. So, so there are other ways, but we should not be just blindly conducting more plenary adoption when we know that plenary adoption does not satisfy the rights of us um, and that we have huge issues with not being able to reconnect back and claim our own kin who we are born to but we're not legally allowed to anymore. Um, you know, that's just wrong. So there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So, yeah, so in my world, if we had the best-case scenario, we would be doing more of what is being done now, which is to put more focus and emphasis on community care, creating supports in a lot of our countries where literally it's about poverty or inequality for women, women's rights. These are some of the pivotal um, key causes of why we get relinquished. Intercountry adoption is a bit different in that respect because a lot of us have been um, released out of poverty where families are placing their children in orphanages, but that's because their orphanages are their only system of what we would term childcare centres. Can you imagine as an American if you were a struggling parent barely meeting, uh, you know, ends, uh, barely meeting your needs you placed your child in a childcare centre just assuming that they're going to be looked after and you're going to come back. But you come back and you find out that, oh, no, they've actually shipped your child to a different country because you didn't come back fast enough. And we just assumed that you're not involved in their lives and that you're struggling so much that you're never going to be a great parent. I mean, this is how it's done in inter-country adoption. These parents are placing their children in these centres because there is no other social welfare structures for them. It is the only one. So they place their children there in this understanding and they have no concept of adoption in many countries. Um, they don't understand legal severance and yet they come back and their children are gone. So is this really about, um, you know, people really not being able to look after their children or is it more about taking advantage of people who are struggling, who don't have the means to actually understand what other options are there and how can I access these other options or, or what do I do if I'm running out of options? You know, we're taking advantage of vulnerable people and we're just perpetuating a system of trauma on trauma. These families don't always necessarily want to relinquish their children. It's more that they don't have any other options and people are taking advantage of that. And that that's wrong. That's, that's wrong. That's about power and privilege and that's why so many of us, um, you know, critical thinking into country adoptees will talk about power and privilege, especially white privilege, um, because it's largely coloured children being and black coloured children being adopted into white wealthy families who have the means to not have to be in those situations, you know. So they don't have that direct empathy for where these children are coming from. Um, and that's that's reflected often too, you know, where my where my parents said things to me like, oh, your mother was probably a prostitute. That is a total white privilege comment of not even understanding my parents' situation, the country at war, decades of war um, and colonialism, you know, where the people of Vietnam were not empowered, you know. Certainly America was not sitting there helping Vietnam to figure it out by themselves and to, and to you know, they got involved as a as an empire. I mean, you know, how is that helping a country? So, yeah. So there's many there's many issues and threads through there. But um, yeah. So there's some of the things I think about when I think about you know what really needs to happen in this space. Um, and I can see it starting to happen, which is great. It's you know a lot of a lot of organisations are now recognising that exporting children out of a country is not a solution. It is not a way to help a country or the people. It is simply alleviating a symptom, and and how and you know when you especially factor into that 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 an intercountry adoption to America is costing on average forty thousand US dollars. How many communities could you help with those forty thousand dollars? You can help multiples of people, not just one child. So right. let's think about what the bigger picture issue is. But let's not forget the flip side of this is that 
people want children to create their own sense of family. What needs to happen more is we need to talk realistically about why are we getting to this situation where people think that it's okay to just take a child from somebody else to fulfil their own need? What's ever happened to holding your own truth and being accountable for the fact that you are acting on your own desire and need regardless of whatever else is going on in the bigger picture of the world? And taking ownership of that, being honest about it, and and maybe talking about, well, are there other solutions for for helping yourself work through that need? What is it that's creating this deep desire in people to think that becoming a parent by taking a child from someone else is the only way to be worthwhile? Like surely for, for those couples who get to that place of needing a child in their lives, surely there are other ways they can fulfil themselves as people without just having to be part of this massive structural system that perpetuates trauma on trauma. Um, and that is a big area that really doesn't get talked about in inter-country adoption space is how no. much how much that desire to have a child is actually contributing to this whole system. You know, the demand from, from adoptive countries is a huge, huge factor. And it's... It's starting to be visible in the Netherlands. You start to see some of this discussion happening, um, but but there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of pushback. There's almost this, this thought with adoptive parents and prospective adoptive parents that I have a right to a child. I have a right just because I want to be a parent. Is that really a right? Do we ever really question whether that's an appropriate right and at what cost does that right overtake the right of a child to know their identity, to be remaining in their kin and culture and to have everything that they have a right to as well. So I think we really need to start to open up those conversations about how the demand for children is really driving and perpetuating a lot of the problems that we know exist in this space. Yeah, these are, uh, Linnell, this is... (laughs) This is just, it's shocking and it makes so much sense. And I think these are the conversations that are so necessary. It's like an expose, you know, of, of just revealing this should not be okay in any, in any way, shape or form. It's just, well, you see, you see the impact of it now moving into surrogacy. It is still the same. Yeah right that parents think they have I have a right to a child regardless of that child's rights or how that child's going to grow up or feel or who I'm using in the process or who I'm taking advantage of in the process this is rife in surrogacy it's going to be a massive problem just as it's been in adoption yeah especially as science science evolves yeah Yeah. nobody yeah as technology yeah, yeah. evolves and creates these new methods of creating families, people think they have a natural right to a family, to create a family. Well, I question that, you know. What happens in Mother Nature when an animal can't have a can't have its own biological offspring? Right. There, there's not all this manipulation that's going on. Yeah. There's not all this it, manipulation. And and no an offspring is not bought and purchased and transacted no and I think that's the part that's so disturbing like if you boil it down and maybe this is too harsh but it doesn't feel like it I mean human trafficking it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's so wrong Linnell and and I appreciate your and this is one huge part of intercountry adoption that is quite different to domestic adoption is that huge amounts of money are exchanged in intercountry adoption, whereas they're not in, in um, local adoption. Um, but this is why, you know, you've got all the worst case scenarios of trafficking in intercountry adoption. So a lot adoption more corruption probably. Because there's a lot yeah. more money. Money should be removed and obliterated if we're to ever. That's another point about if you ever want to really challenge and and, and deal with this system and get rid of the problems, you've got to get rid of money. You know, that is I, the bottom, I agree. bottom bottom cause, um, the root cause of what we see in inter-country adoption space is that 
all these middlemen get in there because they can see that they can make squillions of dollars and they take advantage of both sides, you know, the, the demand and the supply, and they just abuse and go for it. And, um, and there's nothing to, there's not a lot of laws in there to stop them or prevent them. I mean, falsification of papers is about as good as we get for inter-country adoption trafficking. That's a crime in itself that there is not enough legislation to even protect this space from the outright trafficking that we know exists. Yeah, it's such a complex problem. And, and I think it's so important that people like you are out there creating a platform, an honest, open dialogue about these things, because it's just been brushed under the rug too long. People are just putting a blind eye. They want to see, you know, it's too uncomfortable. Don't want to look at that, change the channel. So, oh my goodness. Oh, Linnell, I am going to be thinking about this all night long and probably for the rest of my <laughs> life, for sure. So I know we're coming down to about 10 minutes left, and I really, really wanted to um, talk to you, too, about, like, I, I want to leave everyone with, with um, like, some hope and some encouragement, you know, adoptees that are in despair, birth mothers that are in despair you know, what encouragement can you give them through your own journey of healing? You know, what can you tell people that are just so overwhelmed by the loneliness of being adopted by all of these confusing things? And, you know, maybe I'm being too general, but I just think you've experienced so much in your life and you've been connected with so many people. I just, I think that those moments in time or maybe a few words spoken can make a difference, you know, to think that you have been a person who has tried to take her life to passionately standing in your truth and advocating for the life of others. That is a powerful example, Linnell. And um, yeah, I'll let you speak however you want to the the amazing people that are listening. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think there's Two arms to that. And the first one is the personal. You know, you've really, for me, I really had to deal with my personal situation, my personal story, my personal challenges, my personal traumas. I really had to find a way to heal those first because before I could ever become a passionate and, um, pro, uh, you know, um, a better role model for how to advocate in the space successfully because I see too often too many adoptees will get into advocacy too early where they haven't actually um, had their own inner journey and found that that integration and that space where they can be at peace no matter what happens because once you start to step into the advocacy space, you know, you, you're so much more um, fired upon and criticised and uh, and if you're an adoptee who's still fragile and you still haven't come to terms with your own journey and on that individual micro scale, um, it, it can be a very tough ask and almost impossible to expect yourself to be successful in advocating in a broader space. So first and foremost, I always say to adoptees, heal yourself, find your own healing, find your own path for finding peace within so that you are very stable in who you are and you know exactly who you are, what you represent. Then you will be a much better advocate. Um, And then on the advocacy arm, I say, you know, we need to not be afraid to challenge the status quo, to to find the legal pathways to hold our governments and, and um, agencies accountable for what they've participated in. Only through legal action, I believe, is how we will ever get this system changed because governments and agencies and organisations, they are not forced to feel any pain until we make them feel some pain and usually money is the pain point. So if you hold them accountable through a legal case where they have to pay, where they have to be accountable, where they're held accountable by law, that is when we will get the systems changing. You can see in countries like um, Canada and Australia, some of the few countries already who have started to actually be accountable um, and do the right thing. Now, that's what we should be aiming for is, is getting that replicated around the world where, where governments um, investigate their past, where they be accountable, where they hold hand out apologies, where they start to provide the services and to be accountable for um, providing restorative justice 
for all of the victims, you know, whether that be the adoptive parents, the adoptees and the, and the, and the first families. We need, um, we need the triad rights to be equally balanced and not for us to continue to perpetuate a system that really just goes one way from, from you know, towards the needs of the adoptive parents. Um, and not that I want to villainise them or make them to be the wrong ones. They are often very naive and, and often the subject of being taken advantage of too by those middle people who want to make a quick buck and, and wanted to take advantage of a system that really doesn't have um, many, many um, safeguards um, and many routes to hold them accountable. So I think, I think you know, if, if you hold those two hand in hand, the personal and the global picture of what needs to change and how we help to find healing, I mean, obviously healing is the end game, is, is that if we can find a way to provide restorative justice for the many individual victims of this massive process and system that has been perpetuated for over 70 years, um, that is where we will start to find some some better um, ways for the future. How do we change the future? Well, we've got to look back at the past and understand what we've done wrong. We've got to understand the pain that we've caused willingly. We've got to understand how we've contributed and we've got to be willing to recognise that then we can step forward and, and talk about how do we create a system that will recognise the vulnerabilities, the issues, the risks, how can we better um, support individuals and families and countries and cultures to, to maintain their rights with dignity um, and how do we make sure that we don't continue perpetuating just the same, same old, same old. So we've got a long way to go but I believe that, you know, with, with the adopting movements that are happening, with the sharing forums like yours where, where we're speaking more freely, we're, we're allowing those critical thoughts to be aired as part of the mainstream, um, you know, that's so important. So the work that you're doing, we, we each do this in our own individual way. You know, I meet so many adoptees around the world and they always ask, what can I do? Well, it is about each of us taking our little portion and doing it in the way that we have our strength to do it in and as a whole it contributes to this massive amazing spectrum of changes that are all happening like a global ecosystem when we all do that that is what will push the momentum and force the change it doesn't happen from one of us it happens from many of us all pushing and believing in our truth and holding on to that truth and knowing that one day this will eventually force enough change. It's just we've got to be brave enough to do our little piece. So that's that's what I push in my in my network and space. Um, and that's a belief system I hold on to. Well now I'm I've been crying it on my podcast. So clearly I haven't like healed all the stuff. <laughs> oh no, crying so I, I would be the, healed. I, okay, good, okay. So crying doesn't so, mean you haven't healed. Crying means okay. you hear it and you resonate. <laughs> okay, good. So I can just have a full-on messy cry. I am so grateful that you said that because I think when when I decided to go in and start this journey, it, that was the question I asked myself. What what can I do? And I'm so glad I was able to answer that. Right, I'll do what I can in the in the skill set that that, that I have been have. given. Yeah. And you know what? Thank you for making those of us out there feel like that's enough. That's beautiful. And, and because it's like, look at the one voice that changed your life. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. And Linnell, it's always ripple ripple effect, you know, our one little action can ripple, have such a ripple effect. And when that multiplies, that's when you get that mass movement and mass shift. Yeah, so it's this time with you, I will never forget it. You are a shining light, and um, you've given all of us so much to think about and so much to consider. And I am just so grateful to you, and I hope that one day we can talk again when I can figure out time zones better. <laughs> no, you did fine. Thank you so much. I'm a much writer. I don't do math. Okay. <laughs> Thank Linnell, you so much for well. inviting me on your show, and I wish Thank you all the you. best. Thanks for and what you you're too, doing. And you too, Linnell. Thank yeah, you for no your, what you're doing. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.